Welcome to Rack Talks, a podcast dedicated to the latest trends from the world of rack tech, fintech, and financial regulations. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Know Your Customer. We're an award-winning rack tech provider specialized in corporate client onboarding, KYC, and anti-money laundering compliance. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome David Roser as my guest. David is a fintech entrepreneur and the CEO and co-founder of Neat. He started his career at Citi, where he became their youngest managing director in Asia. He then co-founded the Asian arm of Integral Capital Management, which he sold in 2014 to focus on fintech. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Klaus. It's my real pleasure to be here. It's been way too long since we last saw each other. I have to say that it's always such a pleasure to catch up and share our both our experiences, challenges, and learnings as entrepreneurs in the fintech and regtech space. Interestingly, we have landed on a similar sector, but we come from very different backgrounds. While I have come from this more technical side, your background, as we have seen, is very much in traditional banking. Would you mind telling a bit more about this journey? Sure. The journey is uh, you know, built on two main foundations. The first one is my utmost frustration with systems in general and my days of banking. The second one is the realization that people kept rolling their eyes and throwing their arms up in the air about compliance, i.e. it being a pain point, i.e. it being an opportunity. So frustration on technology, which I'll tell you an anecdote in a second, and then this amazing opportunity, actually, that the pain point, so to speak, that compliance we perceived as creating in, in, in the banking sector really is. So the anecdote about uh, systems uh, dates back to October 2008. For those of you who were around in those days in the industry, you will remember that period as being the Lehman crisis. And uh, at the time, uh, I was responsible for a credit business uh, at CT in Asia, as you mentioned, and we were, together with my team, frantically compiling spreadsheets to report exposure, you know, counterparty exposure, into the you know, uh, wee hours of the night. And thinking on my way home, that what is the point of doing this? Because by the time headquarters collect all this data and then aggregate it and report it, that risk has moved. You had, forget me for a second, you had a team of really talented individuals who were really you know, working frantically, compiling this data, and I was, surely there must be a better way of dealing with data, you know, real time, and getting insights and, and actionable insights on the back of it. And the conclusion that came very quickly by just talking to friends of mine in the market is it wasn't my employer at the time, it was everyone was sort of suffering from this. So this is really what led me to eventually find a co-founder, Igor, who's our CTO, who is a very technical individual by background and, and complements me. So that's really the, the, the journey that I went through to basically then create a, an experience that is serving SMEs with the least amount of friction and yet not compromising on any compliance standards, whether it's the KYC at the onboarding, due diligence that we need to, to do on customers, all the way to the transaction monitoring, the ongoing uh, surveillance of, of our customer activities. From my own viewpoint, I heard Excel and I thought immediately, yes, that is the sure sign that there is an opportunity to make things better. From my point of view, when I started, I saw the exact opposite side there. 
I came from the idea that, well, I know what we can do from a technical side. And I was astonished, just like you, how it's not used currently in the financial space. And uh, bringing those two together is, is always fruitful, of course. So now let's focus on need. Do you have a founding story for need that you can share? We, we went through quite a journey, actually, to get what is known as the product market fit. Because it's holy grail that any startup company, uh, irrespective of whether it's in a fintech industry or otherwise, really uh, strives to get. And we actually started with a solution that was catering for uh, individuals, specifically students and young professionals. Students, though they had, on the one hand, the advantage of having a lot of time and therefore giving us a lot of feedback, that lot of time that they have available meant that they didn't really have that much of a pinpoint going, for example, to a branch and dealing with the bank. So they have time, you know, it's a double-edged sword. But then when they became young professionals, that's when they had a lot less time. Uh, another little story here. We were the first ones to actually do a digital onboarding for opening what we call the Meet account. And we had, as part of that, a, a liveliness test where we asked basically people to take a mini movie of themselves, either saying a randomly generated sentence or uh, you know, performing a facial expression like blinking or smiling and, and just verifying that they are indeed who they say they are and trying to come as close as possible to the, the traditional face-to-face -face meeting. And you know what was very interesting is that the most popular backgrounds that we had were two. The background number one, if you remember in the days where we used to travel, the background was an airplane seat. So this tells you that people uh, were really, you know, when you're rushing to that plane, if you remember those days when you're running to that plane and you have those ah, 10 minutes where you're actually sitting down and, and actually have time to do stuff. That's when they had the time to do this. That's number one. And number two, on their bed, which is obviously the evening. And that's when they had time to do this, which very quickly told us that basically these are people who have no time to go down the branch, to open an account, to actually you know, go through the normal journey that you would be asked by the incumbents, which clearly the whole experience has now evolved. We have virtual banks in Hong Kong, as in many other places in the world. But at the time, uh, it was really revolutionary and it was very interesting. Now, these young professionals, once they opened an account, we started you know, transaction monitoring them. And we noticed that the type of transactions they were doing were not always correlated to a typical consumer. Right? There's not a lot of you know, retail spending, per se, a lot of online subscriptions and you know, Facebook uh, type of merchants coming up. And very quickly, what we figured out is that once they graduated and then joined typically larger corporations, they were running a side hustle and, and they were basically running typically an e-commerce business. So what we were seeing is these uh, you know, young professionals running basically e-commerce businesses on the side. And so we started getting comments saying, hey, uh, guys, at me, what you're doing is so cool. You know, I don't need to go down the branch. Can you do that for my business? Now you hear it once, you hear it twice, you hear it three times. You, you got to listen to the market. And, and this is, Klaus, if you remember the time when you and I met, I remember it was the Singapore FinTech Festival. If I'm not mistaken, it was the first version of it. And I walked up to your, your stand and I looked at you and I said, does your solution really do what it says it does? And you looked at me and said, yes, of course. I said, I'm your customer right now. So, so that's the story. That's right. Yeah, those were the early days. And I remember the flip side of the coin in uh, my journeys through Hong Kong. And I think I did almost the exact thing that you described. I didn't record my video on an airplane seat, but I did record it in Hong Kong airport and lounge. <laughs> 
waiting for my flight. And I uh, distinctly remember thinking, ah, finally, the, the pain is over of having to onboard. And that was my first experience with need, obviously, very, very positive. You then switched to SMEs and, and serve the businesses directly. And uh, what are those pain points of the SMEs that need sets out to address? At the heart of it is really putting the customer at the center of the picture, which sounds very cliche, of course, but actually very few people really do it. Um, and uh, what I mean by this is that you really want to build software to give ultimately controls to these young companies um, and an interface that just is as frictionless as possible. And so these companies uh, continue to face a lot of frictions anywhere from the onboarding, as you mentioned. But then once you eventually have maybe a bank account on the one hand or a neat account, I mean, full disclosure, we are not a bank, we're a complement to, to a, a bank account. And you will see that you will struggle to find, for example, a solution that gives you credit cards. If you look around these days, uh, over 70% of you know, SMEs have at least one online monthly subscription. And for that, you need a card to pay. And good luck. <laughs> it, is not, uh, it may seem simplistic for the audience that is not so familiar with the environment uh, in, in Asia, particularly so Hong Kong, uh, to some extent also Singapore. It is very hard to get uh, a card, let alone getting multiple cards, let alone getting you know virtual cards that can issue instantaneously. I mean, the typical typology we've seen is that even though an SME may have been in business for several years, when it comes to a credit card, very often we know that the owner of the company uses his or her credit card, the personal credit card that is, to actually pay for company expenses and then get reimbursed. So. These companies ultimately need a, a solution, starting with cards. I'm mentioning this because it has become our flagship product uh, since we've uh, launched our, our Visa cards. As you may know, Visa has become a shareholder in need, and this has really been transformational. That is a clear example of a major, major pain point that is removed by offering a seamless solution. That you can then go and issue virtual physical cards in multiple currencies for departments, for specific merchants that you need to spend uh, money with. While we're talking, I thought there is another business idea because guess what? We're using Excel in our company to track all our subscription. Every single thing is on some credit card and you're absolutely right. A lot of these had been on my personal credit card when I started. I was doing a bit of research into the SMEs in Hong Kong and apparently there are over 340,000 SMEs registered in Hong Kong. They constitute more than 98% of the city's business establishments. If we look back over the last year, especially from your point of view during COVID and all, um, what are the SMEs pressing needs in that financial area? And what would be the role of fintech in addressing those? So the, there is, I think, a distinction to make between the, the number that you quoted, which is over 300,000, almost 400,000 uh, SMEs. That actually is uh, the official statistics for purely local Hong Kong SMEs. If you look at the company registry, there are over 1.4 million companies registered in Hong Kong. Now, the, the balance cannot be multinational corporations or large corporates. The reality is that there is a lot of international business that happens in Hong Kong, whether it is for businesses that are importing goods from China, uh, whether it's businesses that are exporting goods from China, Hong Kong continues to be 
that platform in and out of China. Of course, it's been tense recently, right? In the last 12 months, there's been a lot of geopolitical crosswinds happening in Hong Kong. But guess what? It's not changing. As a business platform, it is continuing. In fact, I would actually argue that it cements itself even stronger uh, within the overall greater China uh, ecosystem. The payment architecture of Hong Kong is actually second to none. And you know, some people may say, yeah, but this is all the world of fiat currencies and now we're moving into central bank digital currencies and, and the crypto space. Fair point. The only thing I would say to that is that I think that is you know, several years down the road when you're going to really have a seamless globally integrated system to really replace the, the fiat world. And in the meantime, there's so many pressing needs. So going back to your uh, original question, the needs are to turn your business to an online business. Because it's not only the geopolitical situation that we've seen uh, in these US-China tensions, it's clearly COVID. And, and that has meant that every single business has had to either transform or think hard about some parts at least of the business to transform online. The moment you go online, you get into a very different space. And so you need to be able to, to move with the times to adapt. And by the way, I think it is fair to say that some of the habits, if not most of the habits developed in this COVID environment, I think are here to stay in terms of conducting business. We see this in a big way in, in our company as well. The application of, of RegTech has uh, experienced a big push during this year. And uh, I think it's net good for all the consumers and all the business owners that they can now conduct business online in, in a much, much easier way than ever before. And that's something we definitely want to keep. Do you think disruptive technology, and again, given your background, I'm thinking particular of fintech and regtech, has a role to play driving financial inclusion in Asia? Absolutely. I'd like to spend a minute talking about the concept of trust, because finance is really ultimately about trust. The definition of trust, I think, has really evolved uh, in, in the last decade already, I think. So let me ask you a question actually in return, because let's, let's play a game for a second. If you were to close your eyes for a second and imagine what emoji or um, kind of icon would come to mind when I mentioned the word bank, what is the image that comes to your mind? It's those pillars that they have in front of them. It's a building. It's a, it's a stone building. That's what comes to mind. Exactly. So why, why is that? Banks typically had these so-called marbled holes, these grand marbled holes. That's been there for a very specific reason, and that's to instill trust in people. In the old days when people would go to the bank branch and look around and look at those marble columns and like, wow, this is here to stay, right? built to last. This is a place where I will trust putting my money into. That's the traditional way of thinking about trust in the world of banking. Fast forward the clock to mobile devices and the generation that, uh, or generations I should say now, that are digitally native, that definition of trust doesn't quite align with the marble holes anymore. If something works, I trust it. And it's, it's something that, you know, many people on the older side of the demographics will really like, you know, roll their eyes when they hear this, but it's a reality. We see it every day. And the more seamless a solution we bring to market, the more people will trust it, the more people will use it, and the more it grows, and therefore implants itself, if you will, into the system. And that, I think, is also at the heart of the, the financial inclusion aspect of it. So 
Um, within that, then you have multiple services that can be brought in terms of, of financial inclusion. So the first one is how do you get onboarded by any financial service, maybe a fintech, maybe a bank, maybe um, you know an asset manager, whoever maybe, in a compliant manner that is as seamless as possible. And then once you are onboarded, to then leverage on that, let's call it the KYC that you've done, how can that KYC be used multiple times by multiple users so that you don't get asked exactly the same question by many different service providers because you have provided that information. That is, you know, where technology typically being a lot, lot more customer centric in terms of thinking is then really unleashing uh, a lot of value. Now, it needs to be consumed responsibly because then you can, you know, you can have the, the reverse, right? That people get hooked on, uh, on financial products that they shouldn't really. But that is also where the regulator, you know, comes in and strikes the, the, the right balance. But I think that the element of trust and the interoperability of particularly the compliance aspect, especially so the onboarding, and then of course the transaction monitoring, that's a bit more complicated actually across, across the platform, of course. But those really play a very key role in fostering financial inclusion uh, across the region, clearly because there's a lot of you know, mobile natives, so to speak, uh, but also across the world, I think. Thinking about it from our perspective, often clients reduce us to making the cost of compliance lower with technology. Obviously, that's a too narrow view of what uh, RagTag does. In the terms of financial inclusion, that's actually a, an important part. Because I remember a session with the FinTech Association of Hong Kong. Um, they have a very good RagTech group. And sitting down in 2019 in a nice boardroom with um, the members of that RagTech group, the larger financial institution shared the uh, average cost of onboarding a customer and maintaining them for a current account for two years in the business and SME space. And those numbers, I can't repeat them, but they were astonishingly high. So bringing down the cost of doing that with technology as you do and as we help clients do, that actually has an impact of availability of financial products to different sizes of uh, and different ages of um, participants. Very young companies uh, would struggle to bring enough profits to financial institutions to warrant these very high costs. And that means they will not get onboarded. They will be excluded in some uh, sense. And that's exactly what uh, lower cost of onboarding, lower cost of maintaining that we do with technology helps alleviate. So it fosters more inclusion, I think, um, than uh, just helping the banks. I agree, Klaus. Actually, I have a, an anecdote here too. Take my former employer, Citi. So Citibank is the most global financial institution in the world. As a bank, they are present in 96 different jurisdictions. Notwithstanding the recent pullback in, in the, the consumer banking, they are still present at the wholesale banking level in those 96 jurisdictions. If you were to be um, a business that, um, however young you may be, and you want to have a banking partner that is present everywhere and give you the best chances of selling whatever it is that you're selling uh, across the world, you, you really would have the best-in-class partner there. And it's not because I used to work there that I'm saying this, it's because genuinely they are members of 96 different clearinghouses across the world, which means that they 
don't need a distributed ledger. They, they actually internally can move money seamlessly across the world in real time. Amazing, right? Now, how did they get to be who they are? Well, if you wind back the clock and you look at how Citibank became global, when global, this is the 1950s and 60s, so the, the post-Second World War boom, where the U.S. was just booming, consumers were consuming a lot, and these SMEs, because that's what they were, SMEs in the U.S., were looking to grow their business internationally. And so Citi helped them do so by opening up branches, Hong Kong, by the way, being one of the first foreign branches that they had, and then across the rest of the world. Now, fast forward the clock, present now in 96 countries, those SMEs of the 1950s are now multinational corporations. For a city of the world to go back and look to bank SMEs again requires such a deep level of surgery to change the entire mindset, to change the entire transaction monitoring logic that they have because you're not dealing with stable and, and predictable cash flows that, that multinational corporations typically have. You're dealing with volatile you know, uh, businesses. But then what does it mean? Is that it means that the best player is only reserved for multinational corporations. So we're on this mission at need to enable SMEs to get you know, payment capabilities that are normally reserved to these multinational corporations because they deserve it. But the problem is that the big institutions, the incumbents, are priced out of the market for this. They just, it requires such a deep surgery for them to readapt because the reality is that the roots that they had, most of them, were with SMEs, but they, they're now way beyond that. And again, there's nothing wrong in it in terms of their own business, but there's something very wrong in terms of financial inclusion. Last question, the, the question we ask all our guests, if tomorrow you woke up and somehow you had become the global financial regulator, ding, what would be the first thing you would do? And of course, why? I think it would have to be aligning the different regulators within uh, a particular jurisdiction. So let me uh, unpack that a little bit. Barring a few extreme examples where there's only one regulator in, in a market, typically what you have is an amalgam of, of regulators. And guess what? They're not all aligned on standards, for lack of a better word, right? KYC standards to begin with. One regulator allows you to do the digital onboarding, the other one doesn't. Or maybe it does, but it's not really clear where the boundaries are. So this then creates this incredible friction and frustration, right, candidly, uh, amongst the market participants who are, you know, going back to our earlier example, trying to basically create this interoperability of, for example, uh, you know, KYC, uh, which more often than not actually is taken out by a government. So we've seen that. Uh, you know, in India, clearly Singapore has done big strides in that. Hong Kong is trying to catch up on that as well. And that's most likely, especially in the post-COVID world, your digital identity is going to have to make a lot more uh, of, of a daily use. But then you need interoperability on that as well, right? Because especially when you come to Asia, there's, under normal circumstances, a lot of cross-border movement of people. So how do you then import and make use of these KYC profiles? And so without going to that extreme, even within a particular jurisdiction, Hong Kong is one of them, there are several regulators, okay, but let's make sure that then the standards are aligned. That's what I would get on a mission of if I were to be a super regulator. 
David, thank you so much. This has been excellent. Thank you. Love to talk to you anytime and we will again. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rec Talks. My name is Klaus Christensen and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning RecTech provider Know Your Customer. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the whole series and leave us a review. And if you'd like to connect with us, suggest a guest or a topic for an upcoming episode, please send us a message at info at knowyourcustomer.com or visit knowyourcustomer.com slash rectalks. 